going to be continuing 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> um, Pastor Mike, is it fine if I clean the board? Good. Thanks. Whoa. Okay. First Thessalonians from chapter 1. And last week we got up to up to verse 5. So we're going to continue from there. Just let's just read from verse 5 again. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 5. It says for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of our Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Ghost, so that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad so that we need not... To speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So let's just read up to there and then jump back to verse 5. Last week we finished off there saying we had certain motives for certain acts of service in, this, in, in our spiritual walk. So we said the motives there were um, we. Or the gospel came not in word only, but also in power. So when you have the, the gospel being preached, it's not just the words of the gospel, but there's also the spirit working through you. That is the work, this, this work here, that is that work in power. And then it says, and the Holy Ghost, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting people of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. And then it also says, in much assurance. So this is being fully persuaded of the message that you are preaching and the person being preached to being fully persuaded of what is being preached. And then it finishes off in verse 5 and it says, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So if you read the beginning of the verse, exclude the commas and then read the end of the verse, it actually shows you a great picture. So it says, in verse 5, it says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only. Then jump to the end of the verse. It says, As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And so what it's essentially saying is, is that the word of the gospel, so you need to know the word of the gospel, right? But plus your testimony. I'm not going to write it out. Your testimony is what makes you an effective witness. So it's the word that you preach plus your testimony. And those two things is what made Paul, Silas, and Timothy such great witnesses when they went to this church in Thessalonica. Got it. Okay, good. I'm getting better at this word. All right. Now, let's continue from verse 6. This is where we left off last week. Okay, now, it says in verse 6, And ye became followers of us and of the Lord followers of us and of the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a human example which you follow as a Christian, okay? So he's saying, you are a follower of me. And this word follower actually can be translated or another meaning for it is an imitator. 
So it's to have someone you can imitate, someone you can shape your life after. And so it's, it's, it's like, that's the purpose of discipleship. Discipleship is taking someone and saying, this is how you witness. This is why and how you pray. This is, and so this person comes and looks at this example worthy of following, and that then is, makes them an imitator of that person. Now, the question you always need to ask yourself when you follow someone is, what is my pursuit in following this person? Is it to become more like this person or to have the fame that this person has? Or is it to pursue God? So when you follow a person, make sure that you can pursue God through following that person. And so this is exactly what Paul is saying. You became followers of us and of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul writes and he says, Be followers of me, even as I am of Christ. So by following Paul, you can follow Christ. Now, I want to say having an example to follow is a must for every Christian. Every Christian needs an example to follow. If you think about Jesus, before he sent out his disciples, he did many things, many works and wonders and how he preached to people before he sent out his disciples. The same year with Paul, we see, be followers of me even as I am of Christ. In 1 Peter 2 verse 21, it says, even here unto were you called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. So Christ is an example that we can follow. Every Christian needs that example that they can follow. Now, the question you need to ask yourself is, do you have a godly example to follow? Do you have one to follow? And the more sobering question is, if you are an example to someone and they are following your example, are they getting closer to God or further from God by following your example? Because like it or not, you are an example to many people. And just like you have examples yourself that you shape yourself around. All right. The verse continues in verse 6. It says, Having received the word in much affliction. Okay. Now, the Thessalonians, as we looked in our first lesson in Acts 17, the Thessalonians were strongly persecuted for their faith in, in Jesus Christ. And this wasn't the light type of persecution, the persecution we face for standing up and people laughing at us or thinking that we're being silly for believing or saying what we're saying. This is something much greater. We, we, just before Paul and them went to, to the Thessalonians, they were beaten in Philippi. They were imprisoned in Philippi. Then they left there and they went to the Thessalonians. And while they were there, they were there just three weeks. And then the people chased them out of the city. They had to flee for their lives. Then they got to Berea. And when they were in Berea, they were there for a short while. And then those people from Thessalonica came and chased them away there. So this is a, this is a life-threatening persecution. And this is what the people knew they were getting into when they got saved. So Paul says that having received the word in much affliction. Now, why would they go from living their pagan lives, serving their idols, to change for persecution? Why would they do that? Now, the first thing I think is that the reality of the gospel message, their depravity and God's holiness, that, that contrast that they saw immediately made them realize that this is much greater than what I'm currently in. And then also the testimony of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
I think having seen these men, knowing what they came from, it says there in Acts 17, it says when Paul and all of them came there, the people said that these men had, their, their message was going all over the world. It was turning the world upside down. So the message that Paul and them were um, preaching in Philippi already reached the Thessalonians by this time. So the people knew that what Paul and them had gone through, yet Paul and them were still joyful. They were still preaching the gospel. So there had to be something, I want to say, supernatural in this message they were preaching. And then also there was a firm belief in the truth of Scripture. And I think because of, of these things that were in the Thessalonians, when they saw this testimony, when, I, when they saw what Paul and them came from, and they saw the reality of their sin, and they saw the reality of God's holiness and His judgment, it's almost like they couldn't care less what would be the, the, uh, the effect of that decision. And so... An analogy came up when I was thinking about this and think about yourself being on holiday, you're at the sea and you're going to run some errands quickly and someone comes up to you and they tells you that there's a tsunami coming, right? But you know this guy and so you trust his testimony. But then as you go, you see on the, on the, on the TV, you see there's a news report, a breaking news report that there's warning, evacuate, there's a tsunami coming, Okay. Your family is at home. You need to run. You need to save them. You need to go and get them out from where they are. Frankly, you couldn't care less what people thought of you in that moment, how, what your run looks like, what car you drive, how you're going to get there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens with you on the way. It doesn't matter what, you, what people think about you. What, ha- what matters is the reality of there's a tsunami coming and these people need to be saved. And so I think that mindset is the mindset that made them realize that this is something that's worth accepting regardless of the persecution that may, may follow because of this decision. So this is the, that, that is the Thessalonians' mindset. They, need, they know they needed a savior much more than their temporal well-being. Now, how real is the gospel to you? Would you follow Christ even if it meant your life? Like in this situation, would you accept Christ the Savior if this was the effect of making such a decision? And um, that, is, that is not an easy question, I think, just to answer like that. But these people were willing to give up everything for the sake of Christ. The verse continues, it says, With joy the end of verse 6, it says, with joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, just, just think about this. We're talking about them accepting Christ and the persecution that follows, and then it says, with joy in the Holy Ghost. Now, why joy? Well, first of all, joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Okay? So a fruit of the Spirit is something, well, as you, when you get saved, the Spirit comes and dwells in you, and so the Spirit starts working in you, and some of the fruit of this working in you must be joy. And so that, I think, the Spirit dwelling in them definitely made it possible for them to have joy. But this joy in the midst of tribulation, I believe, is because of an understanding, first of all, of what salvation means. You can't have joy when you've been taken from being prosperous and now all of a sudden being persecuted and then have joy because of your physical well-being. That's not, that doesn't make sense. The thing here is understanding what salvation means. Understanding that it's so much greater than this life and that you've been pardoned from all your sin. That you have a hope of heaven. Remember last week, hope meaning that 
um, holding on to the promises of eternity. They have that hope. They, can pro- they have promises of God and they're holding on to those promises of eternity. And they have a life now being sanctified, a life now being changed. They're not just going about with their daily business. Their life is constantly being changed and God is working on them. And there's a, such a greater sense of purpose in their life. And so the use of the word joy and not happiness, I think, is also very important. It's not happiness because happiness is based on happenings, right? It's not based on the happenings, the things they are persecution. It's based on a deeper joy, a spiritual position that God has now placed them in. Have a look quickly at Romans 14. We read it this morning, Romans 14 and verse 17. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So the kingdom of God is when God comes and makes his dwelling place in you, all right? So now Christ, God is dwelling in you, and you are a new creation, okay? Now this is now what's happened. Then it says, it's not meat and drink, but it says it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Righteousness, peace, and joy. That is your part being in Christ. You have access to this, or you are made righteous, and you now have access to joy regardless of the persecution that you face. And so this is what these Thessalonians were experiencing in this time. All right, let's go to verse 7. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. It says, So that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Now it says, so that ye. So it's, it's, taking, it's moving off of the premise of verse 6, which was, you were followers of us, you have received it in much affliction, and so you lived in joy despite of your affliction. Now it says, so that you were exa- examples. So your example is one, or the Thessalonian example is one of those people knowing how to live through the trials that they are facing. And that was an example to all the people that were around them. Now, Macedonia and Achaia, that is, that's quite a, a large region around um, Thessalonica, and it's about 200 to 300 kilometer radius that we're talking about. Yeah? And so this message of how they endured persecution with joy is a message that spread quite far in this, the area surrounding them. And so this is an example of how to go through trials as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, we all need these examples. And that is why Paul gives credit where credit is due. Paul speaks about them and he says, your examples. Because now this letter is written three, four months after that they got saved. And so now Paul is writing to them three, four months later saying, in these three, four months, your message of how you went through these hardships has spread throughout the whole region. And so he's giving credit where credit is due, and he's encouraging these Thessalonians to see your message has gone much farther than you think it has. And this is something that Paul does quite often. He speaks of Philippi, and he, tells, and he speaks of how they are such a good example of giving sacrificially. Even though they were poor, they gave sacrificially. And Paul mentions that. And then also he speaks of the Bereans, and he says they searched the Scripture much more than any of those in Thessalonica. So he says he commends people for doing something that is good. It doesn't mean he doesn't see that there's problems, but he commends them for doing something that's good. 
And I think sometimes we look at ourselves or we look at other people and we see problems, we see mistakes, we see shortcomings. Yet there are so many things that are also good and it's worth mentioning, it's worth speaking about these things. So don't be ashamed or too proud to give honest compliments um, to brothers and sisters in Christ because this is what builds and encourages them to keep going. If Paul didn't write to them saying, your message has gone so far, what you've done is, is it's incredible how God has used this. That is an encouragement for them to keep going and to keep going. So give credit where credit is due. All right, verse 8. It says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, and not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad. So it says, From you sounded out the word of the Lord. Now this word of the Lord is basically saying, the, either the, 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 the testimony or the, the account concerning Christ. Okay? So the word of the Lord, it's the account of Christ. So that speaks about the, the account of Jesus' death, his resurrection, his, um, um, his, his works of wonders, all those things. Those, that's the account of Jesus Christ. And this is now what's being spread. So essentially, the gospel is being spread from these people. And it says it sounded. Now this word sounded means to make a bold announcement, okay? It, may, it means to make a bold announcement. Think of the, so, the song that says, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, it, that, that's the idea. Then there's another song that says, sound the battle cry, see the foe is nigh. So to sound something is to make a bold announcement. It's to, it's to um, I want to say shout because I don't want you to shout the gospel. That, that, I mean, I guess there are places for that, but don't just stand around shouting the gospel. But, Shout, bold announce, unashamed testimony, that type of thing. And this is what the, th- the Thessalonians were doing. But I keep bringing myself back to the thought that this letter is being written three to four months after that these people came to Christ. Okay? And this is what's being, their message has gone throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And it says it sounded the word of the Lord. It means they knew the gospel and they preached the gospel. And it says in Macedonia, okay. And then it also says in verse, seven, uh, in verse 8 that, but, not, but also in every place, and it says it was spread abroad. I mean, this message has gone really far. And these people had been saved three to four months. That means these people had to be really unashamed of the stance that they took. And their conversion, um, conversion message has just gone everywhere. Now, they had no YouTube. They had no Facebook. They couldn't update a WhatsApp status. None of that. No one could get all the information just like that. They had to walk and speak and then go somewhere. And that person had to get saved. And that person had to speak. All in the span of three months. These people were devoted to, to what they heard. And I, I think to myself, what, what did I do in the first three to four months after I got saved. N- not, not nearly as much. But then I gave myself the benefit of the doubt and you know like, but maybe it's just because I wasn't in the setting so, and I didn't know so much. So then I asked myself, what did I do in the last three to four months? And there's absolutely no excuse um, for how much they did for Christ. And 
I'm not saying they all just randomly stopped working and just went and preached the gospel. They just, in their life, as they went about their business, it was important to them, it was real to them, it was part of them to take the message with them wherever they went. So, how much does your life, not your words, how much does your life speak of your devotion to Christ? How much does your life speak of your devotion to Christ? In verse 8, it also speaks about their message going in every place and then is spread abroad. Interesting, they were, uh, Thessalonica is a coastal city, so there were ships and trade and all those things going on there. And so they were taking advantage of the fact that they had this position in, um, in Greece, that they could preach to someone here and that person would get on a ship and that person would go somewhere else. So as much as he, we are being told to preach it in every place, the location in which you preach also has a great effect on the, or let's say a great, a great impact on the, on the effect of the gospel that you preach. And so I think as much as Poch is not at all a coastal city, <laughs> I wish it was, but it isn't. But in any case, so as much as we have the opportunity to preach to people who are from abroad because of the university, you have people who come from far and wide in South Africa, sometimes even out of South Africa, and those people, if they reach, take that message much further. They take it abroad. And so the location which you have is a, is a great opportunity to be a witness for the Lord. And I, I want, for those of you who do witness to people on campus and stuff, like take great courage in that, knowing that the message of the gospel is going so much further than just staying here in Poch. And um, if a life changed for God, like a life changed in these people's life, it has a great impact on the whole spread of the gospel. Then in the middle of this verse 8, piece we kind of skipped up till now, it says, um, so what was being preached from you sounded the word of the Lord, and then it says, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread, ab- uh, spread abroad. So your faith to God word. Have a look at um, Hebrews 11 quickly. The point I want to make is that the object of your faith is God. The object of your faith has to be God. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, it says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him, okay, God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Him, he is, he, God. All of it is pointing to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The object of our faith should be God. Romans 4 verse 3 says, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Believe God. Okay, the object of your faith needs to be God. Now, if we agree that God must be the object of our faith, wouldn't it be safe to say that we need to pursue him with greater zeal? If God is the object of our faith, if, if, God, if in order to have faith we need God in our sights, how can we not pursue God with a greater zeal? If we want to increase in our faith, if we want to grow in our faith, we need God 
as the object. I want to read you a quote from, this is a book I've quoted on a few occasions, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer, 16 Rand ebook on Take a Lot, if you don't want to spend a lot of money. A great book, okay? Great book. There's a quote from this book. It says, For it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God Himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. Personal experience. They're not the better for hearing the truth. Having two taps, okay? Both have this word. Okay, this one has the word in them. This one doesn't have the word in them. But both taps are closed. There's no water flowing out of either of them. So what is the point of having those words? And that's, that's the point that Tozer is making here. It doesn't matter. They are not the better for having heard the truth if there's no personal experience if there's nothing happening because of that. The quote continues and it says, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. Bible is not a me is not an end in itself. It is a means to bring men to intimate and satisfying knowledge of God. How are you going to pursue God without intimate prayer time and intimate study of His Word? You can't. And so I want to make the argument that your desire to know God and to please Him will show in your dedication and devotion to prayer. And his word. Because that is where you will find him. That is where he will speak to you. And so devote yourself to that. Your faith to God word is spread about. Alright. And then the verse, verse 8 finishes off and it says, um, So that we need not speak anything. So Paul is not saying that he no longer needs to preach the gospel anywhere or around these areas. What he is saying is that, but he didn't have to tell the story of the Thessalonian revival. I need not speak anything regarding what's happened here because everyone already knows about it. Okay? Everyone had already heard what happened in Thessalonica. The people knew about it. Lost people were curious and amazed at the change and safe people were encouraged and strengthened by it. The message had gone around. So, do people know that you are saved? Just do people know that you are saved? Or do others need to tell, like Paul would have had to tell about what happened, do others need to tell that someone else that you're saved, that you're a Christian? Does, does your life speak of that? Or does other people accidentally need to mention that you are at church with them and then, well, he's at church? Hopefully not, right? You don't want that testimony. <laughs> All right, verse 9. It says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you. So, for they themselves. So, as Paul traveled, the people spoke about how great things happened at Thessalonica. So, the people, they, 
themselves show what great manner of things happened. So as Paul went about, I almost want to say he's walking about and he's going from Thessalonica, he's going to Berea and going to Athens. And as he goes, people are saying, wow, it's great what happened at Thessalonica. They just excited the Christians who are saved. It's such an encouragement to see these people stand up for their faith. And so he didn't, they are testifying of what happened to them. And I think as Paul went and he hit stumbling block after stumbling block, but at the same time, he, people were saying, it's great what happened. It's great to see the job that's happened. I think this is such an encouragement to Paul, Silas, and Timothy as they're traveling through throughout their, their mission, missionary journey. Because look at this life. Okay, let's look at verse 5. First Thessalonians 5. just want to show you a few things. What has happened since this gospel was preached to these people? First Thessalonians 1 verse 5. It says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Ghost, and with much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you. So there we see the gospel is being preached, it's in power, and there was a great testimony by Paul and Silas and Timothy. Then verse 6, And then you became followers of us and of the Lord. And then verse 7, seven So you were examples to them that believe in Macedonia. And then the word sounded out from you. So we see a conversion, we have a presentation of the gospel with a great testimony and these people getting saved. And then they become followers of the Lord. And then they become examples through, through their life um, between the people they live and how they handle situations. And then they start preaching the gospel. So this is what's happened in Thessalonica and this is what's encouraging Paul. He's going about and people are telling him and this is just giving him fuel for his journey. So... If you've witnessed to people and you see how many people just reject the gospel flat out, or how many people listen but do nothing about it, or how many people actually accept what you're saying, make promises, but don't continue in the faith, hearing this, seeing this, is a massive encouragement to someone who's preaching the gospel. And that is why it is important for us to encourage one another and to also speak of things like these. I want to read to you um, Third John, if you want to open there. Third John. Third John um, and verse 4. It says... Now, John is speaking about his children as in, in, um, in faith. It's like Paul refers to Timothy and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Not have heard the truth, not believe the truth, that they walk in truth. Their life is a life that is being lived, present tense, being lived in truth. And he says, I have no greater joy than that. And I think this is what Paul is experiencing as he's going and he's speaking about these Thessalonians and he hears about the testimony and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear this. And this is what encourages him to continue. Now, that's the one source of encouragement. But remember, this letter is obviously being written to the Thessalonians. And so the Thessalonians receive this letter and Paul is telling them about how their message has spread throughout Macedonia and Achaia and all over the world and even abroad. And so this is also an encouragement to the believers in Thessalonica. And um, I don't think at this point, I think, don't know if there's any way they could have realized how far their message has gone. It's not like someone can post something on Facebook who's living in that area and says, wow, look, they've heard about us. It doesn't work like that. 
Okay, so they hear this message and like, they are, I think, awestruck by how God has used their testimony. And that is a great encouragement for them to continue serving God. So don't lose heart if you're trying to make a difference. The fruit may not always be seen, but stay faithful because there is definitely fruit. If you're preaching the gospel and you are um, standing up for God, there is fruit, even if you don't always see it immediately all around you. All right. Continuing verse 9, it says, For they themselves, oh sorry, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 9, it says, For they themselves continue to show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And then it says, And how you turned to God from idols. How you turned to God from idols. So this is what the people are testifying of the Thessalonians. Okay, So what they're basically testifying is that they testified of their repentance, their change in heart, their change in, in life. So they, they went from something to something. And that is essentially what repentance is. So the first thing about repentance, number one, it needs to have a from and a to. It needs to have a from and a to. So they repented from idols but to God. So keep your place here quickly and have a look at Acts, Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, and this is where Paul is basically preaching the gospel to King Agrippa. And we're going to get here in the middle of the story. Acts chapter 26 verse 18 says, Paul is preaching and he says, To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. You see, they're from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. Then verse 20. But showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So there was a repentance from, in verse 18, from, um, from darkness from power of Satan, and from sins. So there's, a, there's the from of repentance. But then there's the to as well, and that we find in verse, verse um, 20. It says, and a turn to God. And then he goes on to say, do works meet for repentance. Do works meet for repentance. In First Thessalonians, where we just read, you can go back there, First Thessalonians um, 1 and verse 9, it says, to, at the end of the verse, to serve the living and true God. So, from and to. In Ephesians 8, verse 9 and 10, For by grace are you saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. Then it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ unto good works. So, unto good works. The outflow of of repentance needs to be, there needs to be a show of good works. There needs to be a change in mind to show that they are good works. The next thing I want to point out about repentance is that it starts 
inward. Oh, not inward. Inward. And it works out. It starts inward and it works out. Now, a change of heart or mind, which is what repentance means, means truly viewing your life, yourself, and God correctly. Okay? Viewing yourself, God, correctly, it must change the way you act. If you see yourself for who you are, and you get to know God for who He is, that inward change that happens, that change of heart, it has to affect the way you live. It has to start inward and work outward. Now with this in mind, saying that repentance is taking you from something to something, and it starts inward and it works itself outward, have you, by that, have you repented? Has there come a point in your life where you have repented from something to turn to the living God? And if you have, when was the last time you checked your heart for idols? It says that they turned from idols to serve the living God. So when was the last time you checked your heart for idols? Armand read it to us last week, but Psalm 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. He's saying, Lord, search me. And so have you asked God to search you to show you if there's anything in, in your heart that is an idol that you are placing as a primary position in your life. And as Arman said, you place God secondary and that is the start of your backsliding. That is the start of you becoming lukewarm. And it's exactly that. You don't want to place God second. And I heard something this week that, was, that challenged me a lot about this idea of an idol. Now, an idol is an, is an image or an object which is worshipped. Now, it doesn't just have to be a physical object. It can be an image that you create in your mind. Now, if, if by that definition, how many of us have an idol in the thinking that we're serving God? Because... You can't say, a lot of people say, if you ask them, what is God? Who is God? And then they start off by saying, well, to me, God is. Like, you can't start by saying, to me, God is. God is God. And God is someone who is beyond our reasoning. He is, he is not, he doesn't act holy. He is holy. He doesn't act in love. He is love. He, he, every love, that act of love that you see is stemming from him, the source of love. And so God, I think, is just so much greater than anything we can fathom. And, and to start pursuing that is, I think, is something that can never be, ever be fully grasped. And um, we, need to, we need to test ourselves and say, do we create a God in, in our image? Do we, we create a God that, that is okay with this sin in my life? A God that is that's not... Is not so just he's not so holy or he doesn't he doesn't truly punish that or like what is, who, who is this god that you serve perhaps the god who you think is the god of the bible is an idol in your life because he is not the true and living god now i just want to clarify something quickly on the point of repentance before we continue and that is that repentance is required for salvation but is not isolated to that day of salvation okay 
Repentance is something, it's, 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 it's a holy or act of worship. It's you saying, I am wrong. You are humbling yourself and saying, God, you are right. And so you confess your sins and you, you kneel down before him in repenting, okay, to restore fellowship. So it's not just, it's not, it is present at salvation, but it's not isolated there. A lot of people say, I have repented. You, you can't say that. You need to be. Otherwise, if you say you've repented and you, don't, you have no need for repentance, it means you're perfect and you make God a liar. That's essentially what First John says. All right. So and then it goes on to say that to serve. It says to serve the living God at the end of verse 9. Now, if repentance remained a theology to the Thessalonians, how would they have ever served God? If it just stayed a theology, how would they have served God? Service is doing, not thinking. It's not a philosophy. It's doing something. You see, the people, this testimony that we read about, that Paul was hearing as he went about, the people weren't saying something in the line of, um, these people have not changed one bit except for their new weekly meetings and they go about believing some strange new philosophy. They didn't say they didn't change one bit except that they have new knowledge and they go to meetings once a week. Like that's not, that's not what they were saying. Their lives were radically changed. They didn't have to speak and people could say, this is completely different. So there was a complete change. It's not just a way you think. It's not just knowing a verse or two or going to church or something. That, that's, that's thinking. That's theology. That's, that's not service. And so remember verse 5. We said the gospel, the theme of that verse is the gospel is not just good theology, but action. All right. Theology in itself does not change lives. Truly changed lives combined with theology change lives. Okay. So truly changed lives combined with good theology changes lives. Not just one or the other. And then it goes on and we'll finish off with this. It says to serve the living and true God. Now, um, someone who wrote a commentary on the Bible, John Gill, I'm just going to read to you what he said about this, the living and true God. He said, who is called the living God because he has life in and of himself, and he is the fountain of life to others, from whom all living creatures have their life and are supported in it, by him. Once again, God does not just give life. God is life. And here we see everything is coming through him and supported by him. And this is something that science still cannot explain. They can explain adaptation. They can explain how one species, you know, goes and, you know, brings forth in its kind and that, that type of thing. They can say, but if you keep going back, okay, and before that, and before that, and before that, you come to a point where there has to be an origin. And there is no origin in science. And the Bible has said long ago that God is the origin. He is the life and through him is life. And that is the only way. And then about this true, true God. John Gill says that, And the true God, because he is truth itself and cannot lie, who faithfully performs all his promises and is to be worshipped in spirit and truth. And if we take this, this, this back to if life and truth, we take it back to our origin and say that is where life began because God created it. There is an origin. But then also there's an origin to truth. There's an origin to morality. And so when you speak to someone who holds to evolution, something to ask them is 
where does, if there is truth, where does it come from? And is it absolute? Is there a right and is there wrong? How do you know killing someone is wrong? How do you know stealing something is wrong? There has to be, there's a moral fabric inside of you which God placed there. And because there's a moral fabric, it means there has to be a moral lawgiver for there to be a moral law. And so morality is proof for a moral lawgiver. It cannot come from natural evolution because morality is not natural. And so um, um, this, I heard, I don't know if you know Ray Comfort, he said to a one guy um, that um, he believes, the one guy believes in naturalism, and he said, for nature to create nature, nature had to exist before nature in order for nature to create nature. <laughs> like, you can't say something natural created natural because there has, to be, there has to be an origin. Nature can't create nature because then nature had to be there. How did nature get there to create nature? All right, that's all for today. Let's just stand and close our eyes. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for teaching us so much from your word, Lord. And as we've heard today that just this theology, just this message... Lord, it is so powerful, but it is worthless without a life that is living it. And so, Lord, we ask that you would make our lives lives that, that, that live the gospel, lives that live um, faith toward you, and um, lives that praise you. Lord, please come help us each day that we would have a mindset that is focused on you and um, that we would serve you with all of our hearts and all of our strength and all of our being, Lord. And, Thank you for everyone that's here and we ask that you'd please bless this time of fellowship now and also be with the service to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.